So uh, when I was growing up as a teenager, I had a lot of like really nasty, dirty jobs that I worked. And, and largely as I was thinking through this, it's probably because I was a teenager, no one else wanted to do these jobs. And so I would work, I would work some of these jobs. One of them was I would grade potatoes. Now, has anyone ever noticed when they open a bag of crisps that there are no rotten potato cr uh, crisps in your bag? Anybody notice that? There's a reason for that. It's because someone, me for four years, would put, those, all those potatoes would be put on a conveyor belt and you would have to pick out all of the rotten potatoes and throw them out. And so that they did not get into like chips or they didn't get into crisps and that sort of thing. And that was, that was the thing that I did for four years. And potato dirt is just dirty. Like it is just, it's a different kind of dirty. It just seems to like stick to everything. Like even if you have gloves on, somehow it gets under your fingernails. Like you're wearing boots. It doesn't matter. It's still between your toes. Like you go and take a shower. It's in your belly button. Like it is just weird. The dirt is everywhere. Even a few days after you get done, you blow your nose and it's still just a little bit of dirt there. It's like, how is that possible? It's a gross job. Terrible. Disgusting. Uh, and so growing up, my grandpa, he owned several hog farms. So he had some pig houses. And when I say some pig houses, there were about like, I don't know, four or 5,000 pigs in a, in a house. And, and so like, and I would get the, the luxury of going to help him uh, work at the, at the hog houses. And sometimes it was fun, but this one particular time that I remember, we were doing this specific job. And in the pig pen, there was this floor. It was a concrete floor but it had like slits in it so that like the, the bodily functions of a pig could, could fall through the floor and, and they wouldn't like lay in it. And, and so unfortunately, one of those floors began to break. And so we had to go in there, me and my brother and my cousins, we had to go in there with sludge hammers and pickaxes and like break the floor apart, scoop it out, put it in a wheelbarrow, take it out in a pile. But it wasn't just the floor that was being scooped out. Like it was everything that had been caught under the floor as well uh, that we were having to scoop out. To make matters worse, it was like 35 degrees, no airflow, and like you just imagine the smell, all right? Just, just that, yeah, it was terrible. Not to mention there's still 4,000 pigs that are in there. And I don't know if you know this, but pigs are not very friendly animals. So anytime you get too close to their pen, they're trying to like bite you and trying to snap at you. It was terrible. Another terrible job I've had. So here's a picture of one of the jobs that I had. Now the job itself wasn't actually terrible, but one of these moments was. So we, I worked at a propane company. My dad was the manager of this propane company. And we went to this house of this lady who had a... Had a a leak where she was like losing gas and it's just dangerous to, to do that. And so we had to go and we had to replace the lines. And it was, she had told us like, hey, I'm sorry, there's been some flooding under the house. It's wet under there. And so we went and I, I had, we have this rain suit that we use to go under houses so we don't get super nasty. And so I put this rain suit on and I'm like working under this house. I get, get the leak fixed, get the lines all run. Everything's looking good. We're running pressure tests to make sure nothing is leaking. Everything seems fine. I start making my way out. You guys ready for this? The, uh, the pipe that connects the toilet to the sewer was disconnected. So the, the flood, the leak under the house wasn't flooding. So you can just kind of fill in the blanks of what is actually on me oh. here, what that is. Yeah, that, that's, that's exactly what that is. And I just remember walking out after I saw this, the guy I was working with took a power washer and just power washed me off. My shoes, I threw them straight in the rubbish. I drove home barefooted. I was like, there is no redeeming this. Like, it was terrible. It was disgusting. And I had to go tell the lady, hey, um, I found your leak. Uh, you should get that fixed. And, and so even that, though, isn't the most disgusting job I've ever done before. 
I had, I, have a, I had a crabbing career for one day. One day I worked on a crab boat. And I don't know if you guys have ever known what it's like to, to, to catch crabs, but there's like these big pots that are about this big. And you go and you put them in the water and they're full of like rotten fish that the crabs go and try to eat. And then they, once they get in, they can't get out. So they get stuck in this crab pot. And then you have to go every day and you take the pot, you shake the crabs out. They fall into a basket half the time. Then you have to pick up the ones that don't. And then you have to go and take more rotten food, put back in, toss it back into the water. And within like five minutes of my crabbing career, I was like, no, I'm never doing this again. Like one and only day. Because to make matters worse, not only did you have to do all that, but like eels would get stuck in the crab pots and you had to grab them with your bare hands and throw them out. It was terrible. I hated this job so much. But like when I got home from my one single day of crabbing, my mom even made this, this comment to the guy I was working with. Hey, that's just his first day. You don't have to pay him. I was like, oh no, yes you do. Like, you do have to pay me for this. And, and so thankfully he did. A whole $50, um, not worth it at all. Uh, but anyway, and so like, but, but the thing was like, I went and like my clothes, there was no redeeming them. I just took them straight off. I threw them in the rubbish bin and I went and I took a shower and all I could smell was fish. And so my grandpa used to tell us this wise tale. It's like, hey, if you wash your hands with toothpaste, it'll take the smell away. And so here I am, I'm taking toothpaste all up and down my arms, up my hands, scrubbing it. Now I just smell like minty fish and it hasn't gone away. And so I go to the garage and I get a can of petrol and I pour it on my hands and I'm washing with that. That didn't help. I go and get rubbing alcohol. I wash with that. That doesn't help. I'm like cocoa butter, anything I can think of. And all I do is smell like this fishy mess for days. I smelt like this. I could barely drink water because every time I take a sip of water, that is all that I could smell. I could barely eat until finally, a few days later, it finally disappeared. It was a disgusting, it was a disgusting job. What I learned with that is, is the stink, the dirtiness, it transferred onto every other thing. Like I could not escape the smell. I could not escape the uncleanliness. I could not escape the mess. As we dive into Haggai chapter 2, that's what he's setting up for us. And verses 10 through 13 is this idea of, of escaping, this inability to escape the uncleanliness. So Haggai chapter 2, uh, starting in verse 10. I'm going to read verses 10 through 13 together. It says this. On the 18th year, on the, on the December 18th of the second year of King Darius's reign, the Lord sent this message to the prophet Haggai. This is what the Lord of heaven army says. Ask the priest this question about the law. If one of you is carrying some meat from a holy sacrifice in his robe and his robe happens to brush against some bread or stew, wine or olive oil or any other kind of food, will it become holy? The priest replied, no. Then Haggai asked, if someone, by, if someone becomes ceremonially unclean by touching a dead person and then touches any of these foods, will the food be defiled? And the priest answered, yes. And so Haggai, he's starting off his message. He's asking some rhetorical questions. He did this last week for us. He asked some questions to draw his crowd in, to draw his audience in. And, and these aren't questions that the, that the people are supposed to be like, oh, wait, I know the answer to that. Like, they're rhetorical. They're like, he's not giving them a table quiz to make sure they can still be part of the community here. That's not what's happening. These are rhetorical questions to kind of help us understand what is going on. So just to recap, the question number one is, can things that are holy transfer their holiness onto other things? The answer, no, 
The second question is things that are unclean and defiled, can they transfer their uncleanliness onto other things? The answer, yes. And so these answers are correct according to the Levitical law as we walk through this. And so the message that Haggai is trying to get to us and the way he's trying to understand for us is, is this, is like we can't transfer holiness onto things, but we can transfer uncleanliness onto things that are holy. So usually, usually uncleanliness is more contagious than cleanliness. Now, there's, that, that word usually is important because we're going to unpack that. We're going to give it a little nuance in just a little bit. But usually, uncleanliness is more contagious than cleanliness. Think about this in a very practical sense. You have two potatoes, right? Let's, let's continue on the potato metaphor for a second. You have two potatoes. One is rotten. One isn't. You lay them next to each other. Is the unrotten potato going to make the rotten one unrotten? No. What's going to happen? What is the rotten one going to do? The rotten one is going to make the unrotten one rot. And, and so we see this play out. Like this is, this is simple. And so we begin to see this. Like it's, it's easier to make things defiled than it is to make them, make them holy. And so we read this part of Haggai's, Haggai's message. is like, okay, thanks for that. Not really sure what, what it does with anything. Thanks for the, the, the history lesson of the Levitical law. I appreciate that, Haggai. But like, what's the point? If Haggai's book, Haggai's letter is only 38 verses long, why does he spend three of them discussing this? Like, this just seems kind of like rhetorical, right? It seems like, what's the point? What is Haggai really getting at here? And so in order to answer that question, what we got to do is we got to look back to, to the whole of Haggai's letter. So if you remember at the very beginning, the people of Israel, they are, they are living lives of luxury. They have luxurious home where the Lord's temple, it, it lies in ruins. And God shows up and, and Haggai, through a message through Haggai, and the people are, are there, they're convicted, they are enthusiastic about building the temple. And then a month later, they're not enthusiastic anymore. They're discouraged, they're down because like cleaning up rubble isn't as exciting as they thought it would be. Checking to make sure foundations look good isn't as exciting as they thought it would be. Things aren't quite going the way that they are meant to go. And now Haggai shows up again three months later, three months after he first shows up on the scene, and he starts asking these rhetorical questions. And the purpose is, the reason for this is what Haggai is trying to make the people understand is why there is not a difference in the circumstances, although they are already building the temple. Why things around them haven't actually changed. They've spent three months, they're three months into this, and, and spiritually nothing has really changed for them. And the question that Haggai is addressing, the main point is, here's the reason, here's the reason why. And so he's using these, these metaphors, these rhetorical questions to launch us into the reason that nothing has changed for the people of Israel. And that's because everything is defiled. Look at verse 14. He says this, Haggai responded, that is how it is with the people, with this people and this nation, says the Lord. Everything they do and everything they offer is defiled by their sin. Catch that. Everything they do, everything they offer is defiled by their sin. They're trying to do some really good things. They are trying to, to build this temple. They're trying to get the foundation laid. They're trying to do what God has told them to do. But everything they touch, everything they do is defiled by sin. And here's the reality. Is that we cannot hope to do the work that God has for us while being defiled 
by sin. We cannot hope to do the work that God has for you. You cannot hope to do the work that God has for you if your life is defiled by sin. And here, here's what I'm talking about. I want to make sure we get this. I'm not talking about this unattainable perfection. I'm not take, talking about, okay, you have to be perfect and then God can use you. That's not what I'm talking about. But what I am talking about is a lifestyle that constantly and consistently says yes to God and his call and, and no to my own needs, my own wants, and my own desires. And so being defiled by sin, here's what that is. It's a, it's a lifestyle of disobedience. That's what being defiled by sin is like. It's a lifestyle of disobedience. It's, it's I know the right thing. I just don't do it. I know that what is right and I know what is wrong. I just don't even care. I know it's wrong to be sleeping around, but I do it anyway. I know it's wrong to get drunk on the weekends or any other day. I know that it's wrong to do that. I just don't care. I do it anyway. I know it's wrong to log onto the website and look at porn, but I just do it anyway. I know that it's wrong to lie. I just do it anyway. That's what we're talking about here. That's this lifestyle of disobedience. And, and once again, it's the state. Everything you do, everything you touch is defiled by your sin. And so if we are going to live on mission for God, we cannot live a life that is marked by disobedience. It doesn't work that way because everything will be defiled by sin. And so the people, the people have been defiled. And maybe the question I think for us is, is how? Or the question is, is why? So as we walk back through, through the history of what is happening here, we know that the, the people of Israel have been sent to Babylon and now they've been sent back to, to their people, to their, to their land. And so maybe their defilement has come from, you know, the wicked that, that have been among them. That's, that's possible. Maybe their defilement has come because they've, they've intermarried with some people they weren't supposed to marry and, and that's began to happen. Maybe that's what defiled the people. Possibly. But you know what I think? You know what I think has defiled the people? I think it was the 15 years between when they were, came back home and when the temple laid in ruin for 15 years. I think it's the 15 years of indifference to God's call for their lives. I think that's what's defiled them. It's not just they've completely rejected him. I think it's just this indifference to him and just saying, well, yeah, okay, but I, my, my, my house here, I want to build this luxurious home. And it's just this indifference to God's law. I mean, many of us in this room, I would suggest, I would, I would, I would willing to guess that not a lot of us in this room have just outright rejected God, God altogether. And if you have, let me just speak to you for a second. I love you. I'm so glad that you guys are here. And even though God knew you would reject him, he sent Jesus to, to pursue you and to give his life for you. And so God has been pursuing you. There may be a reason that you are here because Jesus has been pursuing you. And that might be the case for some of us. But I think for most of us, it's not this outright rejection of God, but it's this, just this indifference to him, this indifference to his word. Yeah, maybe... Maybe we'd answer the question, yeah, I'm a Christian, I'm a believer, but the commands, the ways, the, the, the work of God have left dormant, have been left indifferent in our lives for years. They've just been laying over here while we've been doing our, our other thing. And so we see this with the people. We see that they have lived their life just fully indifferent to God, and it's begun to make a mess of their lives. Their, their lives just look different now. 
We see this with God's people as, as God's people no longer resemble God because they have spent years apart from God. They've been indifferent to him for so long that they no longer show the world what he's like. He's been indifferent for them for so long that, that he no longer resembles, they no longer resemble God. And I just have the question, is like, what do you expect? You spend your life apart from God for long enough, what do you think is going to happen? Do you think you're going to look more like him if you separate yourself from him? No, the opposite is going to happen. Defilement is going to happen. And just an aside, church attendance is really, really important. Community groups are really, really important. Because we need those people. Because what begins to happen when we live idly, when we live indifferent towards God, like think we, we need to show up in church because we need people to help call us out. We need people to look through the scriptures and see, hey, this is what is going on, and, and this is where you're falling short. We need that to happen. Because the reality is, our lives, they are going to resemble, they are going to look like something. And it's almost always who we surround ourselves with. Once again, back when I was a teenager, I, I remember very, very vividly the first and the last time that I said the F word in front of my brother. Like I had surrounded myself with people who use this type of language on a regular basis. I had surrounded myself with people that I would say this kind of language around, but like I had a good enough filter that it never came out in front of my family and I was able to cut it off when I got to them. But I remember very vividly, I was 14 years old. My brother Matthew and I had just gone to the shop to get something and we came back and I got out of his truck and I was wearing these brand new pair of shoes and I stepped on a marshmallow. That's all that it took to break down my filter. That was all that it took for me to like lash out and just spill out this terrible language. First and the last time. But here's the thing, I was surrounding myself with people. Eventually it was gonna break. Eventually it was going to come out. Eventually we were gonna start looking like the people that we're surrounding ourselves with. We're, we're currently seeing this in our lives with our daughter Ava. Like our daughter Ava, like she is in play school now. And so when she is, she's surrounded by a bunch of kids who speak with an Irish accent. I don't know if you guys notice, I don't. Uh, and, and so like, I don't speak with that kind of accent, but she's surrounded by teachers and she's surrounded by people who do. And so she has, has these few friends. She has this friend called Zara. And we'll, we'll, we'll talk about Zara. And she's like, no, no, it's not Zara, it's Zara. Or, or she'll say it with like this, I don't even tell a difference, but she can tell a difference. No, it's Zara. And I'm like, I think I'm saying it, uh, but it's like, no, I'm not saying it right. And she has this other friend with the, with the surname Kelly. And so we'll ask her, oh, how is your friend Sophie Kelly? And she's like, no, it's, it's Kelly. I'm like, didn't I just say that? No, no, it's, it's Kelly. And like, she just has this, like, this tiny little accent. It's like, no, that's wrong. You're not saying that correctly because these are the people that she's began to surround herself with and, and they talk a little bit differently. And man, here are the Jews. 15 years, they surrounded themselves with people who are indifferent to God. For 15 years, the temple has lied, laid in ruin, and their life shows. And it shows. There is, there's plenty of evidence because everything they do and everything they touch is defiled. Verse 15 says this. It says, look at what was happening to you before you began to lay the foundation of the Lord's temple. If you have your Bible... Even if it's a pew Bible, it's fine, whatever. You can just mark that word before. Because I think that word is so incredibly important. It's, it's this moment where, where everything changes. 
It's this moment when everything begins to go a different way. It's this line in the sand where it's like enough is enough. Today is the day. And so it's, it's this moment of just being like, well, yeah, life was going this way before I met God. Life was heading in this direction. I had this dreams and these plans and these hopes. I had all of these things that I was going to do before. And now that I have met him, everything begins to change. My desires, my life has been reoriented. Man, I pray. I pray that every single one of us have a before story. If not, my prayers today is the day you do. And so he says, think back to those 15 years before the foundation was laid. Think back to that and listen to what happened verses 16 and 17. When you hoped for a 20 bushel crop, you harvested only 10. When you expected to draw 50 gallons from the wine press, you found only 20. I sent blight and mildew and hail to destroy everything you worked so hard to produce. Even so, you refuse to return to me, says the Lord. I want you guys to catch this. Notice that everything that is said in this is in the past tense. Did you guys catch that? Hoped, harvest, expected, found, sent, worked, refused, like, these are all past tense. Why? Because there's a before, right? Where everything changed. Everything was different. This is the way it was to be. But because of what happened on the 18th of December, everything in their lives have changed. But before that, before we get to the glorious day of the 18th of December, at the end of this passage, there is a gut check statement here. It's been hard, hard to deal with for me. And let's, let's just read this at the end of verse 17. It says this. Even so, you refuse to return to me, says the Lord. Even so, you refuse to return to me. So the, the I sent in, in verse 17, he said, I sent mildew and I sent blight and I sent mold. It, this is a, a reality is that God is disciplining his people. And we talked about the first week that when God disciplines his people, it's in a desire to, to drive them back to him. And so God is doing this. He is disciplining them. He is sending all these things. They're, things are not going the way that they expected. Things are not going the way that they hoped. And even still, they refuse. And I just have to wonder for the people of Israel, man, what's it going to take? What's it going to take in your life for you to return back to God? What is it going to take? And that's the question I think for a lot of us in this room is like, what's it going to take? What's it going to take for you to return back to God? What's it going to take for you, for maybe for the very first time, to turn to God? Because all of these things have been going on, all of these ways that God has been saying, no, don't do that. He's been trying to punish his people so that he draws them back to him and they just continue to refuse. Friends, what is it going to take? What is it going to take? This week I was, I was reading about the, the old school monkey trap. Perhaps some of you guys are familiar with this. So what would have happened is, is the way that they used to trap monkeys is they would take a coconut and they'd like tie it to a tree and then they cut a hole in the coconut that the monkey could stick its hand in and they'd put like fruit or, or vegetables or, or like some, some rice that the monkey would grab. But when it did, he would ball his fist and he wouldn't want to let go. 
And, and so his arm would get stuck because it was, it was enough. He could slide it out if his hand was open, but if it's closed, it wouldn't fit through the hole. And here's the thing. The monkey would not let go of the fruit. They could go and pick up the monkey. The monkey wasn't letting go of what he found. And, and as I was reading that and I was thinking about that, it's like how many of us, are trapped, holding on to sin, holding on to something that is less than what God wants from us. For, and the reality is all we have to do is let go. And freedom is available. Friends, why stay trapped when freedom is available? And the reality is, I don't want to downplay this. Maybe one of the things you have to let go of, maybe it is something good. But it's for something better. Let me just, let me just ask you for the, for the monkey's sake. What's better? Fruit? Or freedom. For our sakes, what's better? An average life or an abundant life? What's better? Temporary pleasure or pleasures forevermore? What is better? Life or death? So maybe some of us in this room, we've yet to, yet to turn back to God. Maybe it's just time to let it go to experience the freedom that Jesus offers, to experience the freedom that is there. And, and you know, like we see with these people's life, like they expected to have 50 bushels of a harvest and they only had 20. They, they were expecting to have all these great things. They were expecting to have these gallons from the olive press and the wine press and it didn't quite add up. And some of you guys know what that's like. Maybe you have spent your lives jumping from thing to thing. You have these hopes, you have these expectations, you have these dreams and they never quite, like, they never quite add up. Maybe it's you've jumped from relationship to relationship, from person to person, hoping that this is going to be the one that brings satisfaction, and it just isn't there. Maybe you've jumped from job to job saying, okay, if I can just get this job, then I'll be content. Oh, if I can get this job, then I'll be satisfied. If I just have this, then I'll have enough. And you're just left feeling empty, and like it, it never quite got where it was supposed to be. Maybe it's another exercise plan. Maybe it's another diet and say, okay, if I get to this number, then I will finally have some self-worth. Then I can look at myself and be happy. And you've realized like, it's never enough. This is where the people have been. They're spending their lives. There's these hopes, there's these dreams, there's these expectations, and they never seem, they never seem to mat up. Because the reality is one of the things that hinders blessings from God is disobedience. So if your life, just think about this for a second. If your life isn't going the way that you hoped, maybe things aren't going the way that you expected. Could it be, just possibly, that you need to return back to God? Or maybe that you need to turn to Him for, for the very first time? Because the reality is, Israel's real problem, it isn't about how to get outwardly clean. Their real problem isn't how to deal with their, their physical uncleanliness. There are plenty of rituals and rules in the book of Leviticus to talk about how we get clean. That wasn't the problem. The, their problem, it runs so much deeper. Their problem, it is a spiritual uncleanliness. It is, it's, a, it's an inward uncleanliness. And the reality for them, the reality for us is that God's saving grace is the only hope for our spiritual and inward uncleanliness. The saving grace of our Father. It is the only hope that we have for our uncleanliness. Because we see in this moment that God, God blesses the people and, and everything changes. Let's look at verses 18 and 19. Haggai says, think about this 18th day of December. The day when the foundation of the Lord's temple was laid. Think carefully. I am giving you a promise now while the seed is still in the barn. 
You have not yet harvested your grain and your grapefruits, your fig trees, your pomegranates, your olive trees have not yet produced their crops. But from this day onward, I will bless you. He says, think about that 18th day of December. I love that idea. He's just saying, hey, get out your calendar. And just circle that. Circle that day as the day when everything changed. Circle that. Maybe you have one of those days in your life where you can look back and say, that is the day. That is the moment where everything changed. If not, it is my prayer that it is the 20th of November. Today is that day that we can circle on the calendar where everything in our life begins to change. And I love this. Like, look at this day. Think about this day. Remember what God has done. Remember what Jesus has done. Three years later, the foundation is finally laid and it's finally there. And God wants the people. He says, I want you to think about this day. I want you not to forget this. And as we look at our text, one of the things that we find, I find fascinating is we see in verse 15, it says, look at what was happening before. So God tells, hey, hey, look back. And then in verse 18, it says, think about this day. He says, and then this day onward, he says to, to look ahead. So what this was meant to be is this was meant to be a signpost that was put in their life where they could look at this signpost and say, okay, when life was heading in the wrong direction, when things were not going the way that I was hoping, the way that I expected, when blight and mildew and mold dominated my life, this was the direction I headed. Now, when my crops are producing, when I'm being blessed by God, it is heading this direction. And God is saying, take that signpost and you look at it. And you realize if you turn left away from God, you know where it's going. You know what's going to happen. Or if you turn towards him in obedience, you know the direction that your life is going to go. In our text, we see three different times we are told to think carefully about the past, about the present, and about the future. He says, think about that day. He says, think about this day. He says, and from this day onward. So he's like, think about the past. Think about the future. Think about the present. It's just a call for every single one of us not to get complacent, not to get spiritually lazy, not to think and just live on, on what happened in the past, but to, to remember, to be reminded of, of the present and, and of the future. And in verse 13, in verse 14, sorry, verse 19, there are just three absolutely beautiful statements that I think are so important for us. The first is God says this. He says, I am giving you a promise. Here's the thing about God. When God makes a promise, he keeps his promises. He keeps his word. And so God is saying, you can trust me on this. You can quote me on this. You can, you can, you can bring this to the bank. You know that I am going to deliver. And like, I, I just think this is so fascinating. Is over 15 years, they have lived their lives apart from him and different to him. And God is saying, hey, I'm going to make you a promise. I'm promising with you. And he is special people because of his covenant love, because of his loyal love. He's never abandoned his people. He's never just given up completely on them. God makes them this promise. The next is, is this statement, this day onward. In a, in a wedding ceremony, my favorite line in a wedding ceremony is from this day forward. It's my favorite line because it, it symbolizes something. It says the past 
That may have been the way things were. The past, it might have gone this direction. But from this day forward, you can count on me. From this day forward, I am with you. From this day forward, everything begins to change. And this is what God is saying. Like You can circle that date because from this day forward, everything is changing. And then the last thing God says is, I will bless you. I will bless you. God is going to bless the people of Israel. And in return, the people of Israel are to bless the world around them. We see this from the very beginning when the nation of Israel starts in Genesis chapter 12. God shows up to Abram or Abraham, Abram at the time, but he, he says, I will make you into a great nation. I will bless you and you will bless the nations of the world. So this is our call as followers of Jesus. We've been redeemed to redeem the world around us. We've been loved to love the world around us. We've been forgiven to, forgiven to forgive others. We have been shown grace so that we can show the grace of the Father to other people. And so there's this moment in the sand, the day on the calendar, that the foundations have been laid, December 18th. And I think this is so significant, is that rebuilding the temple, rebuilding the temple is an act of obedience to God. That, that's key, that symbolizes their, their step in the direction of God and that God's presence re, re, returning to the people and his blessings returning to the people. So it's, 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 it's this building of the temple that, that begins to bring God, God's blessing back to the people. So metaphorically, what temples in your life need to be rebuilt? What temple in your life needs to be rebuilt that, that symbolizes that you are truly doing what God is calling you to do? What temple needs to be rebuilt to, that shows that, that you are taking a step of obedience towards God and doing what God says? So, so metaphorically speaking, what temple needs to be rebuilt? Let's just ask this not metaphorically. Is what step of obedience do you need to make towards God today? What step of obedience... Do you need to make towards God today? Just ponder that for a second. Maybe it's a relationship. Maybe it's a partner or, or a business partner or, or a friendship that you know isn't honoring to God. Maybe today is the day that you end that. Maybe it's a subscription that you have that you know isn't God honoring. And you know, today is the day. There's a step of obedience. I am canceling that. Maybe for you, it's finally admitting today you have a problem. And start seeking some real help and some real solutions. Maybe it's, maybe it's to stop pursuing that, that empty dream, those empty, empty visions of what you think your life should be. And to say, you know what, God, I'm going to pursue what you want for my life now. And I'm going to quit chasing after those things. Maybe the step of obedience you need to take today is, is to commit to serving at church. To commit to giving. Commit to, to being the people that God asked you to be. Maybe the step of obedience you have to take today is to forgive that person, as hard as it might be. Maybe the step of obedience you need to take today is, is to be baptized and accept the, the forgiveness of the Father. I don't know what it is, but I promise you that the Holy Spirit is really good at revealing that to you. Can I just beg you, ask you to pray and ask the Holy Spirit what this is for you? And more than that, can I ask you to, to do it? To do what God is calling you to do. Today is the day to decide on obedience. 
Today is the day to take the step towards Jesus. Today is the day to quit rejecting him, to quit, to quit running from him. Today is the day to take the step of obedience where nothing is ever going to be the same because today is your before where everything can change. And we said at the start, usually uncleanliness is more contagious than cleanliness. You guys remember that? We said that at the beginning. That is unless you're Jesus. Then all bets are off. And in Matthew chapter 8, we get a beautiful picture of this with Jesus. Matthew 8, verses 1 through 4. Here's what it says. So Jesus has just finished the Sermon on the Mount. Matthew 5, 6, and 7. It says, Large crowds followed Jesus as he came down the mountainside. Suddenly, a man with leprosy approached him and kneeled before him. Lord, the man said, If you are willing, you can heal me and make me clean. Jesus reached out and touched him. I am willing, he said, be healed. And instantly the leprosy disappeared. Then Jesus said to him, don't tell anyone about this. Instead, go to the priest and let him examine you. Take along the offering required by the law of Moses for those who have been healed of leprosy. This will be a public testimony that you have been cleansed. There's a few things I want to make sure we, we don't miss here. Is first, it says that the man with leprosy approached him. Because here's the reality. In this day, people who, who were leopards, they had to live in an, a colony, a leper colony, outside of the city gates. They weren't allowed other people, around other people, only people who were, who were leopards like them, because this is a very uh, contagious disease. And so they would have had to spend their lives separated from people. They would not have ever been allowed to approach someone. Everywhere that they went, they would have had this bell on them ringing so people could hear that they were coming. Anytime they got close to someone, they would have to shout, unclean, unclean, unclean. And so this is their reality. Even still, this dude risked it all to come and approach Jesus. And he says, if you are willing... You can make me clean. And I love this about Jesus, friends. He says, yeah, I am willing. I am willing. But there's one point of this I want to make sure that we see. It says this, Jesus, before that, he says, Jesus reached out and touched him. Man, why would Jesus do something like that? I mean, Jesus is the same guy who spoke to the wind and the waves and they stopped. Jesus is the same guy who, who prayed over some food and it was enough to feed 5,000 people with, with, with some left over. Jesus is the same guy who said, hey, go home. Your daughter who was sick and had died, she's, she's, she's better now. Go on. That's the same guy. Jesus couldn't, did not have to touch this guy, but he does anyway. Because with Jesus, Jesus' cleanliness is more contagious than uncleanliness. And here's the reality, friends. Jesus is the only way Jesus is the only way to cleanliness. It's only him. So here's my prayer for us. Be like the leper. Approach him. Risk it all. Step out in faith and you will get the same response that Jesus told the leopard. I am willing to make you clean. I am willing. Let me pray for us. Father God, God, we thank you for who you are. God, we thank you for the way that you love us. God, thank you that you can make us clean. Lord, it's, it's, it's my prayer 
that every single one of us today will be willing to make that step of obedience towards you. God, maybe today, this 20th day of November is the day that we circle on the calendar when everything changed, where we truly got in right relationship with you. Lord, I pray that today is that day. And Lord, as we begin to sing to you, God, I pray that you will reveal in us what steps of obedience we need to take towards you so that we can be the people of God that you desire us to be. God, we're just, we're grateful. We're thankful for everything that you have done for us, for the way that you've rescued us, for the way that you've saved us. And Lord, I pray that you will help us to be more like Jesus, to live for him every single day of our lives. God, reveal to us the way we need to be obedient. As we get ready to move into this time of communion, Lord, I pray that this is, can be a moment of, of confession for us where we examine our lives, where we see the ways that we've been disobedient to you. And God, you will reveal those to us. You will make those known to us so that we can truly, so we can truly be, be the people you desire us to be. Lord, we're just grateful for the way that you love us. And God, help us to, in response to your goodness, to, to, re, to relive for you each and every day of our lives. God, may today be the day where everything changes, where our lives are marked by obedience to you. It's in Jesus' name we pray.